Well, good morning, Living Hope. Let's be looking at this passage here in a moment. There was this um, family uh, who lived out in the sticks, far from civilization. And one day, the the family decided to visit the big city. And so they first ventured out in this big city to the city's mall. And the young boy and the dad, they wandered off while mom checked out one of the stores. The boy and the dad were amazed by almost everything they saw, but particularly these two shiny silver walls that would move apart and then back together again. The boy asked his dad, what is this, father? Father had never seen an elevator before, and he responded, I have no idea. I've never seen anything like this in my life. I don't know what it is. Well, the boy and his dad stood watching wide-eyed at these two shiny silver doors. They then saw this slow-moving old lady with a cane approach the moving walls and press a button. The walls opened. The old lady walked between them into this small room. The walls closed, and the boy and the father watched small circles of light with numbers above the wall light up. They continued to watch the circles light up, now in reverse direction. The walls opened up again, and a beautiful, young, stunning woman stepped out. (laughs) With their mouths open, the father turned to the young boy, and he says, son, Go get your mother and let's run her through this thing. (laughs) Well, wouldn't that be nice? No, not about your spouse. But if the only the thing we wanted to change was as simple as walking through some magic moving doors. Some people are under the impression that if they just could find the right formula or read the right book or attend the right conference, change, immediate change, would occur. And you know, there's a lot of magical thinking in the Christian community. And many have been fooled into thinking that change happens instantly. I remember being frustrated and discouraged as a young follower of Jesus coming off of years of rebellion that certain areas in my life didn't change as quickly as I had heard from testimonies of other Christians. Now make no mistake about it. God specializes in changing people. The Bible has a lot to say about change. We heard a testimony of that earlier. But what is it that changes us? What is it that can transform our lives, get to the heart, and change us from the inside out? Well, that introduces us to our new sermon series in the book of the Bible called Romans. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, and then Romans. Now, the challenge of Romans is not only its theological heaviness, but it is a very long book. It has 16 chapters, and it is jam-packed. I read an article entitled, How to Preach on Romans Without Emptying the Church. (laughs) I know of preachers who have spent three years working through the book of Romans. 
great preacher of the past, Martin Lloyd-Jones, preached verse by verse through Romans, now get this, from October 1955 to March 1968, 13 years. I won't do that to you. And as a way of helping you not feel as though you're drinking from a fire hose for months on end, I'm going to tackle the first eight chapters over the next few months and then take a break and then with the hope of returning to the rest of it at another time. And also, I I, I won't look at every single verse and every section, but we'll draw out concepts that give us the true flavor of the book. All right, if you're not there, I invite you to turn to the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1 as we begin our study on the theme of the gospel changes everything. And I chose that direction for this series because I am convinced, as we're going to see in our study, that when we are gripped by the gospel, our outlook on life changes. The way we respond to the happenings of life change. It says the gospel breaks through into our lives that real transformation takes place. And not just for salvation, but to grow as a Christian. I love how Pastor J.D. Greer put it. He said, the gospel, the gospel is not just the diving board off of which we jump into the pool of Christianity. It is the pool itself. This one, in this one book, we find the clearest presentation of the gospel. I mean, if you only had one book of the Bible and it was Romans and no other book of the Bible, you'd have all that you need to know about the gospel, about salvation. And as we're going to see, the gospel is not just the ABCs, but rather the A to Z of the Christian life. Tim Keller says it this way, it is inaccurate to think the gospel is what saves non-Christians. And then Christians mature by trying hard to live according to biblical principles. Get this. It is more accurate to say that we are saved by believing the gospel. And then we're transformed in every part of our minds, hearts, and lives by believing the gospel more and more deeply as life goes on. Okay, Romans chapter 1. This morning, we're going to see the promised gospel in verses 1 through 7. Then we're going to see the preaching of the gospel, verses 8 through 15. And then we're going to see the power of the gospel, verses 16 and 17. Okay, promised gospel, preaching of the gospel, power of the gospel. Let's first look at the promised gospel. Romans 1, verse 1. Notice how Paul sees himself. He says, verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. Now we see here, he mentions the gospel right out of the gates. Now the gospel in its simplest form means good news. Now interestingly, the word gospel was used in that day by the Romans regarding imperial propaganda. The Romans coined the term gospel to proclaim the good news of their Caesars. 
If you lived in Israel at the time of Jesus or, or just after, the gospel that you would have heard from your birth to your dying day was the gospel of Rome. Rome, Rome spread her gospel across the known world, promising that if you humbled yourself under the rule of the great Caesar, you would receive protection and prosperity and peace. And so when Jesus comes along and he says that he's bringing the gospel, in essence, he's elbowing Rome in the ribs. He's saying, I'm the true offer of protection, prosperity, and peace, not Romans. And for the church in the writings of Scripture, the gospel was all about the all-powerful God-man, Jesus, who became our substitute on the cross, who willingly paid the penalty for our sins. The good news is of the Christ who satisfied the wrath of God, who must punish sin, who died, was buried, and rose again on the third day. That's the good news. And this good news is not new news. This is not something Paul or, or, or any of Jesus' disciples invented. It's not even an afterthought in the mind of God. It wasn't this plan B, but rather the plan from the beginning. Notice verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets and the Holy, Holy Scriptures, meaning the Old Testament, regarding his son, who as to his human nature was the descendant of David and through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you see it? The gospel is a continuation of what was spoken about in the past, years before Jesus' first advent that we just celebrated. It was the plan which God promised beforehand as he announced it throughout the Old Testament. Many references to Jesus and what he would come to do throughout the Old Testament. The gospel, though, we must remember, is not only about a what, but a who. It's about a who. Great scholar John Calvin, commenting on this passage, says, uh, this is a principal passage in which we are taught that the whole gospel is bound up in Christ so if anybody moves a single foot away from Christ, they would draw themselves from the gospel. Jesus is the unique son of God. He's not a created son. He's the eternal son in that he is equal with God. This, is, this 100% God became 100% man, yet he was without sin. And by raising him from the dead... As it says here, God declared powerfully and publicly that Jesus is his son. Resurrection matters. Years ago when the age of reason was dawning and an anti-Christian intellectual named Lepo, he created a, a rational new religion. The Pope became frustrated that his religion of reason didn't surpass Christianity as he had hoped. And the stories told that the Pope was desperate for advice, and so he went to French Foreign Minister Charles Maurice de Talleyrand. And the Pope went to Talleyrand and he bemoaned that despite its superiority to Christianity, his new religion of reason failed to catch on. And so he went to Talleyrand and said, do you have any suggestions? And Mr. Mr. Lepo, the diplomat, dryly replied, to ensure success for your new religion, 
You need only two things. Arrange to have yourself crucified and then three days later rise from the dead. (laughs) See, Jesus' resurrection is the linchpin of Christianity without which it crumbles and disintegrates before our watching eyes. The resurrection identifies Jesus as the Son of God, the conqueror over death, the world's Savior, and that this Jesus the one who was promised in the Old Testament to bring salvation. Is your trust in the who? The question to you from this first point this morning is, do you believe this gospel? Do you believe this gospel? Are you putting all your weight on it? Second heading this morning is the preaching of the gospel. Now, as we come to verse 8, Paul opens up his heart to the church in Rome. You see, the book of Romans is, is rich in theology, but before Paul launches into that, he gives them a little window into his heart. As the old saying goes, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And so Paul lets them know how much he cares for them. He expresses his deep longing to see them. He says in verse 10, I long to see you. Verse 12, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. Now we saw this when we went through the first letter to the Thessalonians back in the fall. But the difference in this letter here is that this church was not founded by Paul and he likely hadn't even visited this church. Yet we still see his love for people. And it's his love for people that motivates him to share the gospel with them. Paul's passion to preach the gospel bursts forth as we come to verse 14. Look at verse 14. I am obligated, he says, both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and the foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach, to share the gospel also to you who are at Rome. See, to, to all classes of people, Paul felt an obligation to tell them of the gospel. Do you have an obligation? Do you feel that obligation to, to, to share the gospel with others? And, and you kind of think of that, and you go, I don't know, a sense of obligation doesn't really stir up a whole lot of excitement in us. It's kind of like, I got to go make the donuts. I got to go make the donuts. I got to go make the donuts. This is no fun. I have to go share the gospel. See, an obligation to do something sounds more like a chore than a willingness to do it. I don't think that's the best word here. I think the the better word is debtor, D-E-B-T-O-R. It's the idea of owing a debt to someone or something. So why is preaching the gospel a debt to be paid? Well, think, think along with me on this. There are two ways of getting in debt. The first way is to borrow money from someone. And the second way is to be given money for someone else by a third party. So, for example, let's say that I asked you to loan me $1,000. And you gracious, gracious enough to, to give $1,000 to me. Now, I now owe you $1,000. I am in debt to you until I pay that money back. Now suppose instead though, a friend of yours gave me an envelope with $1,000 in it. The money wasn't meant for me, but he wanted me to pass that envelope with $1,000 in it to you. 
He said, hey, hey, can you give this money to my friend the next time you see him? I say, sure, I'll do that. Now, I am in your debt until I gave you that money from your friend. Your friend entrusted that money to me. I owe it to you to give that money to you. That's the way I believe Paul's using this word here. He wasn't in debt to the Romans and that he borrowed something from them and he had to pay back. Jesus entrusted him with the gospel. And until he shared the good news with them, he was in debt to them. He owed them that. Because good news is for sharing. Because we know what we have been saved from, we owe it to others to tell them this great news. Actually, we shouldn't even be able to contain our excitement. True stories told of the youngest of three children. And if you are that, you'll appreciate this. But the youngest of three children who in the minds of the older siblings and their friends was always in the way. It was something you could count on that 10 minutes into whatever they were playing, the little three-year-old would get pushed aside, uh, yelled at something, skin a knee, whatever it might be. One afternoon that happened, she came through the front door crying for mommy. She had gotten the worst again. The mom, attempting to comfort the three-year-olds, gave her two freshly warm baked cookies. Now, don't tell the other kids yet. Don't tell your siblings. She cautioned, I haven't finished. I haven't got enough for everybody yet. You know what happened. It took less than three seconds for little Carrie to make it to the screen door, fling it wide open, announce to the big kids, cookies, I got cookies, right? Now, we may question her, her motives here, but when we have received something so wonderful, we have to share it. We can't keep it to ourselves. We owe it to others to tell them of this great news. And Paul was so convinced that the gospel could change people, he arranged his whole life around preaching and sharing the good news. In Peanut's cartoon, Linus had just thrown a stick for Snoopy to retrieve. That's what dogs do. And so Snoopy's first instinct as a dog was to go chase the stick. He then stopped a few minutes and decided against it. And he turns to Linus and he says, I want people to have more to say about me after I'm gone than he was a nice guy who chased sticks. (laughs) What are you chasing? Do you need to pause to evaluate what you're really living for. Paul inspires us here to keep the main thing, the main thing. And at our recent elders meeting, we were talking about growing pains that we're presently experiencing as a church. It's a good thing. And we praise God for that growth. We're thankful for the many new people not only visiting but sticking around. But listen, frankly, with that, is the greater need to guard our objectives and our initiatives and to stay true to our mission. We're to be about making disciples who make disciples. And all that we do here must revolve around that mission. Why? Because we are convinced 
that it isn't busyness or adding more activities or doing more that changes lives. But the gospel that has drastically changed us can change others. That's what we believe in and are convinced of. And we need to keep the main thing the main thing. We're going to protect it. And so I ask, have you been touched by the grace of Christ? Then who around you needs that touch as well? I read about a novel that was called Timequake, and I didn't read it myself, but my understanding of it is that it centers on a series of stories about people who have lost control of their lives. And rather than determine their own destinies, the characters in the book enter a time quake where they're forced to repeat the same bad choices over and over again without the possibility for improvement or redemption. That sounds horrible. When the time quake finally ends and people once again are released from that and have a chance to live their own lives... Most people are still gripped by post-timequake apathy, or PTA. PTA is a condition that keeps people immobilized by despair. They can't move forward. And one of the main characters named Kilgore Trout is the only one who isn't gripped by this state of apathy. And towards the end of the story, he tries to revive others by repeating this motto. He says to them, You were sick, but now you're well. There's work to do. Believer, you were sick, now you're well, but there's work to do. And every person who comes to Christ, that describes them. I was sick, now I am well. There's a process going on there, as I said at the beginning. I am well. Now there's work to do. The gospel doesn't save us and leave us where we're at. God in his infinite, unconditional love saves us. He cleans us. It's a process in which he does that. And then he uses us to spread the good news to others. So not only do you believe this gospel, but the second question this morning is, do you love this gospel? Do you love this gospel? Third heading this morning is the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Now as we come to verses 16 and 17, in one sense they're transitional and that these words uh, prepare us for what comes next as we're going to be answering the question, why do we need the gospel? We'll be picking that up next week and following. Why do we need this gospel? Well, let's just look at verse 16 for now. He says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, Why? Because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. Now, I want you to pay attention to the wording here. It doesn't say the gospel brings the power of God, or that the gospel results in the power of God, or that you get the power of God through the means of the gospel. No, it says the gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is powerful enough to change you. And there's no shame in proclaiming that. Now, there are a whole lot of people, myself included, who are ashamed of that at times. We shrink back 
from speaking it because we know the gospel is offensive. Listen, when we share this gospel, people will be offended, okay? They will. I'm not suggesting we need to be offensive. We don't need to to go around offending people on our own because we're just rude and obnoxious. Not saying that. But the gospel is counterintuitive. It will offend. It goes against every worldview. It contradicts every system of thought and every religion created by man. This gospel, this good news, where does it start? It starts with the fact that there isn't anything you can do to be saved. That's offensive. I want to do it. I can do this. And so we feel ashamed to tell people that because we know they're going to be offended. I would go as far as to say, if the gospel doesn't offend you, then you don't fully understand it. I would rather that the gospel bother you than it has no effect on you at all. Because the most powerful message in the world is that Christ came to save sinners. A wretch just like me. That's Christianity. Now Christianity is not good advice. It's good news. Religion, philosophies, they offer good advice and then they leave it up to you to fix what is wrong. To find God, they say, you just do this and this and this and this. How's that good news? There was this t-shirt from some Christian novelty company that had a picture on this t-shirt of Jesus on the cross. The slogan underneath it was, Jesus did his best, you do the rest. I hope that doesn't sit well with you. (laughs) The gospel isn't that Jesus did 99% and we do the 1%. No, grace means 100% God or nothing. Because God came near, he broke into into the world in the person of Jesus Christ. And now he wants to break into your world and change you. And yet so often, so often we prefer a God that never meddles, never intrudes, but he's there to comfort us when we need him. Just kind of keep God over here Don't intrude my life. Don't try and mess with this here. Just be on my side. I ran across an article this week about a 37-year-old Tokyo man named Shoji Morimoto. I might have botched his name. I have no idea. But Morimoto, he rented himself out to do nothing. He's willing to eat and drink and give simple verbal feedback, but nothing more. And listen, he has more offers than he can possibly accept and over 250,000 followers on Twitter. What was it that gave him this idea to rent himself out to do nothing? Well, after attaining a graduate degree, Morimoto got a job with a publisher, but he was soon fired, and his boss came to him and said, it doesn't matter if you're here or not. I got him thinking. There may be people out there who need someone to do nothing. He began offering his services for free, but now he charges 10,000 yen per call, which is a little less than 100 bucks. Now, what kind of people pay Morimoto to do nothing? Sometimes a group needs an additional person for a game they're playing, but mainly his requests come from people who don't want to be alone. 
One woman rented Morimoto to come along when she met a potential date for the first time. He accompanied another person to a lawyer's office to sign divorce papers. He went with one person to the hospital to, to kind of give them courage to make a visit they've been putting off. Some people just want to talk about their problems with someone who will not give any, any feedback. Just come alongside me. Don't speak into my life. Just be there. Listen, the power of the gospel is that it won't let you stay where you are. It is meant to be life-changing. And you fight against that, you're fighting some powerful force. So I ask, is the gospel that saved you changing you? You got in and you say, that's fine with me. I'm going to stay right where I am. Now here's the genius of the gospel. Here's its power. I've got to come to verse 17 here. Notice verse 17. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous or the just will live by faith. And the righteous or just will live by faith is taken from the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. But what I want us to see here, and to really lock in on, is that not only is the gospel about forgiveness, not only is it about our slate being clean, not only is it about the pardon we have received, it's all of that. But the gospel is about all that has been given to us. The righteousness of Christ. Adam touched on that in the message a couple of weeks ago from 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin for us, which of course doesn't mean that Jesus was made sinful, but rather it means that he was treated as our sins deserve. But notice the rest of the verse. It goes on to say, so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. We dwell on that phrase this week. In order for the gospel to really change us, we must see the gospel as not only forgiveness, but that we are now clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. If the gospel is the power of God in your life, then you leave here today not only having received forgiveness, but also Christ's righteousness is upon you. And living this gospel out each day, it isn't about trying your best, quit doing that, start doing this. There's really no power in that. The gospel is about God giving you the undeserved gift of righteousness at the start. A right standing before him. You are, as Adam mentioned last time in his sermon, under new management. The gospel is the power of God because the righteousness of Christ places you immediately in right standing before God. What you once were before coming to Christ has changed. Jesus has done something to change how God now views you. That's great news. Because of Jesus, God the Father now looks at us and he accepts us. Our relationship to him has been changed. That means, there's the practical working out of it, at least one way. That means when we mess up, and we will, 
We can go to God and ask for his forgiveness and he is faithful and just to forgive us of that sin and that is absolutely amazing and wonderful. But do you know what's even more wonderful than that? Your right standing before God never changed. Our standing before him never in question. It isn't up to us to keep that righteousness, that right standing before God. Christ made us righteous, and we do not have to worry about ever messing that up. How freeing is that? Now, before you think that this is a license then to do whatever you want, and Paul's going to address this later in the letter. The truth is, if you've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, then that righteousness is being developed in you. He won't let you stay where you are. But this is always intact. See, our motivation, this is why I'm saying this, our motivation to live right is not to keep our right standing with God. It's the effect of our right standing with God. Let me say it again. Our motivation to live right is not to keep our right standing with God. It is the effect of our right standing with God. We get those switched around. We don't live the gospel. So if you have experienced the power of God through salvation, then you're attracted to the Savior. You desire to live like the one who did what he did for you. And it changes everything. How we view life, how we think, how we behave, how we just go about all the world that's around us. In the TV series called uh, NCIS, Naval Criminal Investigative Services, there's an episode about a poor, broken-down old man, a former Marine. He's in his 80s. He's kind of drab-looking, and he's accused of murder. At one point, these two big, muscular Marines and and a grimacing uh, Navy lawyer come after this poor little man. They're about to arrest him. They're overshadowing and overpowering him. Here he is standing in their presence, accused. And as they stand and they're about to cuff him, a friend of the old man pulls his tie aside. Under his tie is the Congressional Medal of Honor that he had done acts of extraordinary valor and bravery beyond the call of duty and had been given a Congressional Medal of Honor. When the Marines... The snarling lawyer immediately saw what it was. Instead of looking at the poor little old man, the accused condemned man, they saw that medal of honor and they immediately snapped to attention and saluted. They were in awe. Just like that. It's how God sees us. See, the power of the gospel is not that we just have received forgiveness. Besides that, We have been given a medal of honor, the righteousness of Christ in all his glory. He took on evil. He was condemned for us. We now wear the medals won by Jesus. We didn't earn it, unlike the man in the story, nor do we deserve it. But the righteousness of Christ was given to us as a gift. And as Luther puts it, my word, that's incredible. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. We're clothed in his righteousness. I leave you with three questions. 
Do you believe this gospel? Do you love this gospel? Do you live this gospel? Do you believe this gospel? Do you love this gospel? Do you live this gospel? Let's pray. God, you know my excitement in coming into this study here with Romans and you know there's a lot here and I just pray that we can unpack it in a way that helps us make sense of what's going on here and help us to be drawn to the gospel message and that we really believe as we walk out of here that it does change everything. Thank you, God, for the good news of Jesus Christ that we're now going to sing about and press upon us our need to believe it, to love it, to live it. By your power and your grace, we can do it in Jesus' name. Amen.